Good morning. My name is Scott. I'm one of the pastors here. And uh, not just saying this, but it is really good to be here with you. Um, yeah, some new friends and some old friends. Just really uh, delightful being here singing with you, being in the Japanese hall. It's pretty great. Thanks, Dylan and team, for creating such a great space for us. That was awesome. Also, I've been part of this church for seven years now, and I've never seen Scott Anderson play the drums. Uh, Scott Anderson, ladies and gentlemen. Wow, thank you. What a gift. You always surprised me. I thought you were just a great lead team member and an awesome human, but no, there's more. Uh, also, uh, greetings to our online uh, people, however you're making it or watching this morning. Just, I've got to give some love over here. It's, they, they get a horrible view. Not that this, this is any better, but hello. <laughs> Welcome. All right. And uh, yeah, I was just encouraged also by some prayer this morning uh, with before the gathering started and Nelson said uh, these awesome words that there's other things going around. Um, COVID obviously is going around. We're all getting hit and affected by that. But let's remember there's other things going around like light and love. And if you need an encouraging word, go to Dylan. He will just bless you. And uh, Rochelle, my dear friend, I just love when you serve at the info desk. Today, when you're doing it, it should be called not just an info desk, but an encouragement <laughs> desk. So if you need some information and or encouragement, go see my friend Rochelle. You will receive it both. Um, yeah, there's other things going around. Um, this is my first preach of 2022. So we'll see how this goes. And uh, my New Year's resolution is to do a good job. <laughs> Here we go. <laughs> that's it. That's it. Uh, I'm going to start by reading the lectionary text again. Thanks, Melissa, for reading that. Um, I'm going to start a little bit earlier in Luke chapter 4, verse 14. And uh, we're going to see what scripture unfolds. So uh, listen to uh, part of the story of Jesus in Luke chapter 4, verse 14. Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit, and news about him spread through the whole countryside. He was teaching in their synagogues, and everyone praised him. He went to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, and on the Sabbath day, he went into the synagogue, as was his custom. He stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. Unrolling it, he found the place where it is written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Then he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. The eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him. He began by saying to them, Today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. All spoke well of him 
and were amazed at the gracious words that came from his lips. Isn't this Joseph's son, they asked? Jesus said to them, Surely you will quote this proverb to me, Physician, heal yourself, and you will tell me, Do here in your hometown what we have heard you did in Capernaum. Truly, I tell you, he continued, no prophet is accepted in his hometown. I assure you that there were many widows in Israel in Elijah's time when the sky was shut for three and a half years and there was a severe famine throughout the land. Yet Elijah was not sent to any of them, but to a widow in Zarephath in the region of Sidon. And there were many in Israel with leprosy in the time of Elisha the prophet, yet not one of them was cleansed, only Naaman the Syrian. All the people in the synagogue were furious when they heard this. They got up, drove him out of the town, and took him to the brow of the hill on which the town was built in order to throw him off the cliff. But he walked right through the crowd and went on his way. This is the word of the Lord. Uh, in 1913, over 100 years ago, there was a ballet that debuted in Paris by famous Russian composer Igor Stravinsky. Um, when it debuted in 1913, there was quite a stir. Some were offended, some were amazed. There was hissing and items being thrown on stage in protest. It was said that the noise from the audience got so loud, the disapproval and the mixture of amazement and controversy, it got so loud it drowned out the voice of the choreographer who was shouting the steps to the dancers off stage because the rhythms were so complex. He's trying to do this, they couldn't hear, they're trying to go on with the show. At one point, one reporter called, recalled one man challenging another man to a duel. Good debut. That one uh, press, press review said it was a laborious and childish barbarity and added, we are sorry to see an artist such as Mr. Stravinsky involving himself in this disconcerting adventure. Ooh. <laughs> so what was the controversy? It's worth a listen, by the way. You can search it on Spotify or iTunes. Um, the Rite of Spring. What was it so, what was so crazy about it that made the audience stir? Well, the music itself was quite dissonant, pulsating rhythms, kind of strange and, and, and jerky. Uh, this was all intentional by Stravinsky. Um, it was disrupting what the audience and mostly wealthy people in Paris at the time, what they expected and what they anticipated when they came to the theater. They expected to see a traditional performance with beautiful music. Instead, they got the rite of spring. Have you experienced this before where maybe art or a friend or saying something or social media where it disturbs you, where it's unsettling? This is kind of similar to what's happening here in Luke 4. There's a mini riot in the synagogue. Um, this local local lad, not loco, maybe some people thought loco, local lad, Jesus, 
challenging what was expected, dissonant, a little bit strange, upsetting. And I just want to jump to the end and see the response here in Scripture. So we looked at the response of the rite of spring. Let's look at the response of the people at the end of this passage. Verse 28 says, All the people in the synagogue were furious. They, when they heard this, they got up, drove him out of the town, and took him to the brow of the hill on which the town was built in order to throw him off the cliff. They, the word used here is furious. In Greek, it's thumo, a strong passion or emotion from the soul. Anger, fury, rage, and wrath. Other translations say the crowd was filled with wrath or filled with rage or seething with anger. My question is, why? What happened? What upset the crowd so much? And um, for those of you who like outlines, this is my outline. We're going to look at this controversial section, uh, hopefully answer why it was so controversial, because I've learned it's not obvious, and then find an invitation for us today. So with that in mind, let's pray, and we'll keep going here. Thank you, God, for 2022, and that there's other things going around. Thank you for Dylan and Rochelle and people that make us feel welcome and encouraged, uh, so inclusive, and I'm just grateful for that. Thankful for your scripture, and I pray for your help and for our eyes, um, physically and spiritually, to see uh, what you're saying and to hear what you're saying to us this morning. Amen. So let's look at this controversial section and just um, full disclosure, I thought I knew what the controversy was when I looked at this. I, I thought I fully understood it, but I didn't. So I'm hoping to communicate a bit of this because it's quite interesting what the controversy was. So let's start at the, at the, the beginning of this controversial section. Um, verse 20, then he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant and sat down. It says the eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him. So Jesus, a familiar face in the community, reads the lectionary reading. And this is the word of the Lord, thanks to be God, sits down. And then he keeps talking. And I, this, I was confused by this. And of course, our attention would be drawn to him. Um, but if I realized this is not uncommon for rabbis to do, to sit when they taught to read the scroll, stand up, and to sit when they taught. So it wasn't like a rogue sermon or something he was planning to teach. They were anticipating that he would expound on the text, and he does. He began by saying to them, today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Yeah, that's interesting. Maybe there was some excitement, some confusion, curiosity, and I thought this was the controversial section, but it's just the beginning of it. Verse 22, all spoke well of him, it says. They weren't angry with him yet and were amazed at the gracious words that came from his lips. Wait, isn't this the son, isn't this Joseph's son, they asked? Like, wait, wait, wait a second, what? Is he claiming to be a prophet like Isaiah? 
Is he saying more than that? Is he saying he's the Messiah? What is he saying? Little Jesus, Joseph's son, the one that made me a salad bowl last winter? What is happening here? Then this is where the dissonance becomes too great for the crowd. Verse 23, Jesus said to them, surely you will quote this proverb to me, physician, heal yourself and you will tell me, do here in your hometown what we have heard that you did in Capernaum. Verse 24, truly I tell you, he continued, no prophet is accepted in his hometown. I assure you that there were many widows in Israel in Elijah's time when the sky was shut for three and a half years and there was a severe famine throughout the land. Yet Elijah was not sent to any of them, but to a widow in Zarephath in the region of Sidon. And there were many in Israel with leprosy in the time of Elisha, the prophet, yet not one of them was cleansed, only Naaman the Syrian. So it's pretty obvious why people got so upset, right? No, if you're like me, I, was, I had to do a double take. What, why still, why are people so upset? Why are they uh, thumoing uh, Jesus? Why is there such rage? Or as N.T. Wright said, what was so wrong with what he said? What made them kick him out of the synagogue, hustle him out of the town and take him off to the cliff edge to throw him over? What is happening here? Jesus is challenging their motives and changing the narratives. What the audience came to hear, what they expected, was not what they received that day. Instead, they got strange, jerky sounds. Jesus said to them, surely you will quote this proverb to me, physician, heal yourself. What's going on here? He's challenging their motives. Jesus sensing that they weren't quite buying it, there's a bit of a stir in the crowd, and so he preemptively challenges their motives. And they're, in a sense, saying, okay, show your stuff then. They wanted proof. If you're the Messiah, or if you're a great prophet, show us right here, right now. Do something. Instead, he decides to turn on them, and he gives two deep cuts, references to old Jewish scriptures uh, in our Old Testament that were very upsetting to the listeners. One was, and this is where he changes the narrative. Two references, one about a widow and one about a leper. Why is this so upsetting? Both, first, there's, there's reasons why uh, these references were so upsetting for the heroes, the hearers, sorry. The prophets Elijah and Elisha represented a really dark time in history for uh, Israel. It was one of the lowest periods in the nation's history, a period where they turned their back on God. So referring to the specific time, just even that alone, uh, was kind of like a collective sting in their imagination or their memory. Uh, in both instances, the widow and the leper uh, was an example of God bypassing his people and saving Gentiles. So someone on the outside, not of God's chosen people. The widow, you can read about in 1 Kings 17, Elijah helps, uh, she's not a Jewish one. That's not a huge deal, but to add insult to injury, there were many Jewish widows in need of help at that time, because there was a famine in the area but Elijah helps a widow from Sidon, an outsider, instead. 
Then the commander, you may be familiar if you're familiar with the Old Testament text, Naaman, the commander of the Syrian army, an enemy of Israel. They had even defeated Israel in a few battles. So just even referring to Naaman was a bit of like, oh, okay. And then to add more insult to injury, they were, there were many Jewish people in that area that had leprosy, but God saves one, not a Jew, but a Syrian commander. So he, Jesus is bringing these stories up and a slow burn just starts to take place. The people are like, ah, that doesn't feel good, Jesus. Why are you bringing this up? The problem, I think, in both references is that there's feeling God is rescuing the wrong people. They were familiar with the prophecies of the Messiah coming, bringing justice for the weak and the poor, but up until that point, they imagined themselves as the recipients, not the Gentiles, and they had been the, recipi the recipients, especially not their enemies. It was unexpected and shocking. Like one pastor said, God is unfolding a new narrative through the particularities of outsiders, of edge people who come to God and bear witness to God through God's actions in edge places. And occasionally in temple settings, deserts, drought-wracked lands, famine, struggling widows, dying children, disbelieving commanders, servants, Isaiah, Elijah, Elisha, Jesus. They were learning in a moment that they would not be the primary vessels for the unfolding of God's plan. God's grace was radically inclusive and welcoming to the outsider, to the edge people, and the Israelites were having trouble swallowing that pill. And this is actually the reason artisan can exist. Um, all the Gentiles said, amen. <laughs> but that's what did it. That's what drove them to this thumo rage. Then as we already read, what happened was the people in the synagogue were furious. They heard this. They got up, drove him out of town, and they took him to the brow of the hill on which the town was built in order to throw him off the cliff. Then probably the most profound and significant verse in this passage, at least to me, was Jesus' response. I love this. Luke 4, verse 30. But he walked right through the crowd and went on his way. What? <laughs> you can't do that, Jesus. This is a great conflict. It's really important. Stay here. Other translations say, but passing through their midst, he went away. Or another one says, but he gave them the slip and was on his way. He just left. Uh, I've been thinking about this scene all week. There's so much happening here in this little verse, so much that's unsaid. Like, how did he leave? Was it subtle? Like, did anyone even notice? Or was it kind of like a football running back going through the defense? Like they split them wide open? Or was it like a mini Red Sea moment where the crowd kind of miraculously parted and he crossed? 
Was the crowd resisting or willingly letting him go? It doesn't say. And I kind of love that it doesn't say. It just says he left. <laughs> Jesus left. But why? Why, does, why did he walk away? Also doesn't say. Maybe disinterested in their conflict. Maybe frustrated with their action. Maybe after sharing the heart of his mission, the reason he came to earth and they couldn't accept it, he just was done with trying to persuade them. I'm out. And what did the crowd do? In their anger, did they even notice him leave? The point is, we don't know what the disgruntled faith community is doing or talking about because that's not the center of the action anymore. Luke, in his narrative, follows Jesus and no one else does. Jesus leaves the crowd. We don't know what they're doing. They're furious. <laughs> so my question, and again, I've just been reflecting on this all week. Where's Jesus? Where's Jesus? We know where he's not. He's not with the angry faith community. He's not staying to pastor them through their anger and confusion. He's not opening up a support group. He's gone. <laughs> Perhaps a uh, good question for us today, where's Jesus? Are the things we are preoccupied with distracting us from seeing Jesus? Got personal real quick. But I'll make it about me personally. I have these questions. Can I locate Jesus? Have I gotten caught up in debates or activities that don't matter to him? Has the action shifted and I missed it because I was so consumed with what I thought was important? This can lead to other unsettling questions. Where am I in relationship to Jesus? In this scenario, am I the crowd? When the time comes, will I choose to pick up my cross and follow him again? I was hesitant to tell this story because it's, it's deeply personal, but um, I just couldn't shake it. This, And so I'm going to share it with you and everyone watching online. <laughs> oh, gosh. Um, I have been in spiritual direction for uh, several years now and uh, really enjoy that practice. I find it really life-giving and helpful. And uh, a couple years ago, I was with a spiritual director processing my struggle with being a functional atheist, distracted, prone to wander, frustrated that I'm saying I'm following Jesus and I do something else seeing a massive disparity in what I aspire to and where I actually am, and seeing these two separate things and getting really frustrated. So I'm, I'm in this spiritual direction session and my spiritual director, May, she asked me, as she often did, what image comes to mind when you think of your situation or how you feel? What image comes to mind in your in this complacency that you're wrestling with. 
And two images came to me really clearly. Uh, an image of a couch and an image of my office. My couch and my office. The couch representing vegging, overindulging, entertaining myself to sleep, to death. Excess, sloth, lust, envy, glutton, the list continues. The couch and the office representing my sometimes complacency in my vocation. Am, am I saying, side note, am I saying couches and offices are bad? No, I still use them quite frequently. But in this moment, they were images for me representing these areas where I felt slipping. And then she asked me this question, where's Jesus? A great spiritual direction question. Where's Jesus, Scott? And I just sat with that. And she was gracious to leave space for me. And I almost immediately saw Jesus at the edge of my couch, at the doorway of my office, extending a gentle hand to me saying, do you want to go on an adventure? That was it. Do you want to go on an adventure, Scott? No judgment, no anger, no wrath against me, no condemnation, just love. Then an encounter with God on a sailboat and led me to this silly quote by Mark Twain, 20 years from now, you'll be more disappointed by the things you didn't do than by the ones you did do. So throw off the bow lines, Scott. Sail away from the safe harbor, Scott. Catch the trade winds in your sails. Explore, dream, discover. It's so silly, but it was everything also. And I, I saw verses like this in Romans 8 with fresh eyes. This resurrection life you've received from God is not a timid, grave-tending life. It's adventurously expectant. Greeting God with a childlike, what's next, Papa? God's spirit touches our spirits and confirms who we really are. And I've been pursuing this call ever since. Not perfectly by any means, but with some wonder and play and curiosity. And I realized something this last year that I've been, uh, I've been needing to make a shift in my own life that I've been seeing the future with fear and anxiety and not with that sense of play and creativity or curiosity. And uh, that led me to this little booklet by Scott Erickson called Move From Fear, which I highly commend to you. And uh, chapter one, I'm gonna read it for you. It's very short, but I just wanna read it for you if that's okay. Because um, I think it pertains to what we're talking about. Fear hates adventure. Love is adventure. That's what it says in the, the hands. He writes, of course you're afraid. You're about to be transformed. Every adventure you've ever witnessed was about a hero being transformed. If they knew what it would entail beforehand, they would absolutely have said no. 
because who in their right mind would choose the dying of what they know? But if you ask them on the other side of transformation, if they would go back to the way things were before, well, no one actually knows what they said because stories of people choosing not to transform are never passed from generation to generation. The goal of human life is to transform, not to transform out of a human life, but to transform fully into it. Surely you have felt this invitation. I know it calls you. A caterpillar isn't done yet, and neither are you. The only thing preventing you from the hero's journey is the lack of control you have in trading your dying self for whatever the transformation wants to give you. You ask, or you say, what will, be, what will I be like on the other side? Only the architect of your transformation can tell you. I do not know the details of your adventure, I cannot speak to the particular internal conversation of your human life. I don't know what you will lose, but I can assure you that if we could pull back the curtain of your adventure like Dorothy did on hers, what we'd find is that the architect of your transformation is not a malevolent imposter, but is in fact love itself. The move from fear to love is to allow the mystery, the mysterious unknown before you, AKA your life, AKA your adventure, to be the way in which you come to know love because to know love is to be fully human. And love is constantly orchestrating your homecoming. So I wonder what your answer to that question is. Where's Jesus? If we were to create a moment, spiritual direction, mass spiritual direction, to just let that sink in a bit. Where's Jesus? What would the answer to that be? Going back to Luke, I love that there's an answer to this. Where's Jesus? It doesn't end. In verse 30, he walks away. He's doing exactly what he said he was going to do. Bringing good news to the poor, proclaiming freedom to the captives, giving sight to the blind, letting the oppressed go free, proclaiming favor to the outsider. The fulfillment of Isaiah is happening in real time. He's liberating and healing, and not just those on the inside. He's moving outside the borders to the other Luke 4, 31, the next verse, picks up with Jesus healing people and casting out demons. Luke 5, Jesus is finding disciples to follow him. Spoiler, it's not in a synagogue, it's at the beach. And here are some challenging words. The God we proclaim and worship will not be domesticated, homebound, shut in, confined by our temples, and stagnated by our stories. God does not quietly accept our own well-worn narratives, smoothed over and sweetened by complacency and comfort. <sighs> Jesus comes into our midst and declares that the scriptures have been fulfilled in him, through him. Then he goes on to create a new narrative that is ours to follow and recreate. This is a dynamic, raucous God who jars us to wrath or faithfulness. 
and who simultaneously provides us the opportunity to partner in the creation of a new narrative woven with edge people in edge places and in the particularities of daily living and daily people. Indeed, new narratives are unfolding in our midst in some of the most peculiar places where God continues to act far outside our holy walls. David L. Ostendorf. An invitation to you today, simply to follow him, again or for the first time. And side note, he's usually moving, so it's kind of hard work to track with him. Your answer to this invitation uh, yesterday might not work tomorrow, uh, but we have some help. And this is kind of a weird form of help, but I just found this really helpful. Rich Villadas talks about, uh, the next slide, three important questions when evaluating spiritual health. And this was an Instagram post, so he didn't elaborate on it. I'll let you do the elaborating. But I think it fits really well with Luke 4 and the theme. Three important questions when evaluating spiritual health. Do I pray every day? Am I involved with the struggle of the poor? And do I have the kind of friendships in my life that move me beyond bitterness and anger? I just love the combination of those. I'll leave that with you. And I also want to say to those of you who are feeling the disparity is too great of where you want to be and where you are, it's okay. God loves you and is with you and for you. And yes, sometimes he leaves and he also pursues and he never really actually leaves us anyway. And what I love about this passage and the context even for Jesus himself was that it was based in a foundation of belovedness. He has a word of affirmation that begins his ministry, not at the end or not during, not before he, not during or after he heals or does miracles. God says before any of this, you are my son in whom I am well pleased. And the world often doesn't work this way. Show us something good, then we'll affirm you. Then we'll applaud you. Then you're good. Uh, the, the kingdom is a little bit different. You're good. Now do it. <laughs> Not do it and we'll judge you or affirm you for what you've done or or whatever. You are loved. That's it. Full stop. You are loved. So don't get caught up in this dangerous act of comparing, judging yourself, and feeling rotten and just not doing anything. You're not rotten. And some questions may be helpful or not for reflection as we come to the table. <clears throat> One, what would it look like uh, to accept God's love? What would it look like today for you to really accept his love for you? Number two, what would it look like for us to follow Jesus today? What would need to change? What would we need to leave? <laughs>